Well, uh, uh, good afternoon to you all. It's not quite good evening. It's a fantastic audience for you, uh, Danny, and we've turned away an awful lot of people, which is a testimony, really, to the impact your work has here at the LSE and, of course, beyond the LSE. There are many people here beyond the LSE. And the kind of following, you know, your incredible research and interventions have had over the last few years, over the last decade or more, I should say. And for me, it's a particular pleasure to introduce Danny Roderick. I've known him for some time. We've had a number of intensive discussions and disagreements, particularly about the relationship between global market states and democracy. I take a slightly different view. But they've always been very intensive and informed discussions. And he is a brilliant interlocutor. Uh, let me say something briefly, I don't know more formally about him, uh, and then, of course, we will start. Danny is the Professor of International Political Economy at the J.F. Uh, Kennedy School at Harvard University, as you know. He has published widely in the areas of international economics, economic development, and political economy. His research focuses on what constitutes good economic policy and why some governments are better than others at pursuing it. Danny is affiliated to many places. I'll just mention the National Bureau of Economic Research, the Center for Economic Policy Research London, the Center for Global Development, the Peterson Institute for International Economics, and the Council on Foreign Relations. His work has also received many uh, uh, prestigious awards, including the inaugural award of the Albert O. Hirschman Prize of the Social Science Research Council in 2000. And, seven, and he also received the Leontief Award for advancing the frontiers of economic thought, in addition honorary doctorates from the University of Antwerp and research grants from a large range of foundations. This evening, Danny is talking about his new book, The Globalization uh, Paradox, Why Global Markets, States and Democracy Can't Coexist. And after this event, if you'll allow Danny and I to leave first, we're under some time pressure because there's another lecture coming in at 6.30, so we'll follow at 6.15. You'll allow us to go first. Danny will be outside and be happy to sign copies of his book. I should add that this evening's event is being hosted by Global Policy. If you don't know about it, you absolutely should. An innovative and interdisciplinary journal bringing together world-class academics and leading practitioners, it's the two that matter, to analyze both public and private solutions to global problems and issues. Danny, we are delighted to say, is on the board. And if you want more information about global policy, you should go to its fantastic website at www.globalpolicyjournal.com. One word, Global Policy Journal. And we've been flattered by some people of saying that the Global Policy website is so sexy you ought to have to register somewhere that you are over the age of 18 to proceed from the home page. Well, here is uh, Daddy himself. Many thanks. Thank you very much. It's, it's, it's really a great pleasure uh, to be here at the LSE, uh, and it's, it's a great honor to be introduced by my friend uh, uh, David Hell. Uh, as, as David mentioned, he and I have had uh, 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 ongoing discussions about the very topic of this book. Uh, I have uh, uh, great respect for, for David. He's, he's been one of the, uh, the most insightful and, and lucid voices uh, on, on, on these topics. As he also mentioned, we don't necessarily agree. Uh, on, on, uh, on, on, on where to go next, but uh, I can tell you that uh, 
my, my discussions with him have, uh, have had a very substantive impact on the way that um, I've actually written this book. Um, there is one chapter in particular uh, which probably wouldn't have been written if it hadn't been for my, for my discussion uh, uh, over dinner uh, here with him about, uh, I guess, around two years ago now. Um, so uh, he may still be unhappy with the way that the book has come out, but I can, I can guarantee him that uh, I've taken his, uh, his views to heart. Um, uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's a little bit difficult to talk about the book. Uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, I need to tell you enough uh, about the book that, that you will feel interested. Um, you think there is something uh, neat in it, uh, but not so much that uh, you feel like you know everything in it and you don't need to go buy it. Um, so, uh, and, and I'm not sure whether that intermediate point is exactly the same for everybody here, so um, it, it, it may be a little bit uh, difficult to, to manage. I'll just run through a, you know, a, go through a rather quick uh, uh, tour of the book. Uh, I could do it in one of two ways uh, because the book is both a, a historical survey and also a, a survey about the, the history of ideas. So it's both a survey of practices uh, in globalization, also a survey of the history of ideas. Uh, I'll be emphasizing here most, uh, mostly the, the first, so I'll give you a very you know, crude, caricaturized historical survey um, that leads up to where, where I'm coming out uh, uh, with my ideas. But before I do that, I guess I should just you know, you know, frame all of this around two key ideas um, that, that, uh, that, that inform the book uh, at the very outset. Uh, the first of those two ideas is, is um, um, uh, in, in a way a, a, an addendum to Adam Smith's uh, famous dictum, which uh, I'm sure everybody here knows, which is that the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. Um, and my addendum to that, and that's sort of the first principle that informs the book, is that the extent of the market is limited by the reach uh, of workable regulation. Um, the, the extent of the market is limited by the reach of workable regulation. Um, what that is referring to is essentially is the idea that, that markets, in order to work well, uh, require a broad range of, of uh, governance institutions to underpin them. Uh, uh, of course, Adam Smith himself was very much aware that markets do not arise out of themselves, so you need property rights, contract enforcement, those non-market institutions for markets to, 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 to come about in the first place. But in the years and decades and centuries since Adam Smith, we've also learned that markets are not just uh, not uh, self-creating, they're also not self-regulating. There's a whole range of, of, of externalities, informational asymmetries, coordination failures associated with markets. So we need to underpin markets through systems of regulation. Markets are not self-stabilizing. Um, as we, of course, have seen in, uh, most recently in the context of the, uh, the financial crisis. So you need a whole range of macroeconomic institutions uh, to, to underpin markets. And ultimately, markets are not self-legitimizing uh, because the distributional outcomes they throw out need not be fully consistent with the norms of society. So we need a whole range of legitimizing institutions uh, to ensure that what markets do are consistent with the values and norms of, of society at large. Uh, so that's what I mean by my first principle, that, that the, the, the reach of mar the extent of markets is limited by the scope or, of workable regulation. Uh, so you need this, these institutions to underpin them, and markets can extend only so far. Uh, it cannot go healthy in a healthy fashion beyond the reach of those underlying institutions. The second principle 
um, uh, and this is uh, probably the one where uh, David and I would differ. The second principle is that um, uh, in the world today, uh, the main uh, source of legitimate governance uh, remains, the main source of legitimate governments remains the nation state. Um, and uh, I, I'm saying this largely because uh, um, uh, political, de uh, political democracy is still by and large uh, organized around the institution of nation states. And that is not simply a historical artifact. In other words, it's not simply a practical constraint to my mind. It's also a result of the fact that different societies have different needs and preferences for the way that they want to shape their arrangements, their social arrangements, whether they're labor market institutions, whether they're financial regulations, whether they're, they're, uh, their needs for industrial restructuring and economic transformation. Um, and um, and, and uh, the, the only workable uh, uh, mechanism that we have for uh, endowing the institutions that undertake uh, and provide those functions are the institutions of political democracy that remain for the most part organized at the level of the nation states. So if the first principle is that you cannot have markets go beyond uh, their institutions of governance, if the second principle is that those institutions of governance for the most part are legitimately still organized around nation states, uh, you have the logical conclusion, which is the foundation of the book, that you cannot actually have markets uh, extend way too much in an uncontrolled fashion uh, beyond uh, the control of the institutions that are still very much at the level of, of, of the nation states. Now you might read this uh, in a very pessimistic fashion. Uh, um, actually, the, the, the book tries to convince you um, uh, that this is not a bad thing, that going, in fact, one step further, further what we need to do is to, is to re-empower uh, national democracies because it's only those uh, democracies that can provide the truly uh, um, uh, required underpinnings of, of healthy, uh, healthy markets, and that this would be good. Uh, and. And this is one of the many paradoxes uh, uh, that I, I, I discuss in the book, that this would be actually good for the world economy. So re-empowering national democracies is not a way to go to uh, protectionism. It's actually quite to the opposite. It's a way to actually make for a more healthy world economy. Um, uh, it won't get you the perfect globalization, uh, but the whole point, of course, is that we cannot get the perfect globalization uh, given the diversity um, and given the political arrangements we have in the current world, and therefore we should look for a healthy world economy uh, based on, on, on re-empowered national democracies rather than try to achieve the unattainable, uh, which is a, a perfect globalization. Um, let me um, now... <laughs> talk about beavers. Uh, so uh, from the very abstract to the very concrete. So I'll start my, my little historical survey of the interaction between globalization and its institutions of governance uh, uh, by a little story uh, about the, um, that, that actually is also told at the beginning of the book about the, um, um, the Hudson's Bay Company. I don't know if there are, are there any Canadians here? So HPC, you've all heard about HPC is the, is the largest general retailer in Canada. So also is the longest, um, is, is, the, is the oldest joint stock company in the world. It started out in the uh, latter half of the 17th century 
um, as the Hudson's Bay Company. And this is the origins of that company. It's an interesting episode of globalization, which I use to elucidate the, the, um, the link between trade and governance um, and how this uh, interplay between markets and their governance has shaped uh, the evolution of globalization over uh, long periods. Hudson's Bay Company was really the, um, uh, the product of, uh, of, of three people. Uh, two of them uh, were um, uh, French-Canadian um, um, uh, adventurers um, who uh, figured out that um, um, there was great demand for beaver fur uh, in Britain and the rest of, of Europe uh, because the only source for beaver fur at the time was uh, either Russia or the French colonists who had uh, ensconced themselves in, in, in what's now Quebec and had monopoly access to the fur that the beaver supply that the, uh, the native Indians, uh, the Native Americans uh, along the shores of Hudson Bay in North, Northern America uh, were, uh, were, 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 um, were, were catching. Um, and uh, the idea that these two uh, adventurers had was to create an alternative sea route um, from, northern, from the northern Atlantic and uh, bypass uh, the French colonists in, in, um, in, in, in Canada. You can see in red there the route that they thought that they, uh, they might establish. Uh, these were largely uncharted waters. It was a very risky venture. And they thought that we could actually sort of set um, sail from Britain um, to, uh, th on, sh th on ship through the northern um, Atlantic, travel through those straits there, Hudson Straits, and go into Hudson Bay. Now we can then land on the shores of Hudson Hudson Bay and reach the Native Americans from the, from the, from the north, evading the Canadians, the, the French uh, colonists uh, in, in the south, and this way we could trade directly uh, with the, uh, with the native, uh, native Americans and bring all this uh, new supply of beaver fur to Britain and, and, uh, and, make, a, and make a lot of money. Uh, the problem was that the French colonists didn't want to listen to them, um, and therefore they needed another patron. Um, and they found uh, another patron by coming to London. And here comes the third character in the story, uh, is, is uh, somebody called Prince Rupert, um, who um, had dabbled in, in, uh, in all kinds of things, including uh, art and, uh, and, and the military, uh, but for our purposes really had the great uh, advantage of being the, uh, uh, the, the, the nephew of King Charles II. Um, and so he had access to resources and a lot of friends, and so he financed this trip. And in, um, um, in, in, uh, Jan in June 3rd, 1668, uh, this first trip takes place from Britain on this ship uh, called the, uh, the, the Nonsuch. Um, and uh, four months later, it, uh, it, it, it lands on Hudson's Bay, uh, essentially demonstrating that the business plan works. Uh, that you can actually make this trip, you can contact the Native Americans from the north and actually establish this new trade route. Um, now, once they were back with their first batch of supplies of fur from, uh, from Hudson's Bay, uh, our trio of, um, of, of um, um, adventurers uh, did what any entrepreneur in the 17th century would have done, uh, which is go petition the king for a monopoly. 
this was, after all, the, uh, the period of mercantilism, and uh, this was the way business was done. And now, of course, the, uh, the, the, uh, the close link between uh, Prince Rupert and King Charles II uh, came in very handy, uh, because King Charles II was only too happy to grant uh, this new company, which was now to be called the Company of Adventurers of England Trading in the Hudson's Bay, uh, a, uh, a chartered monopoly. Um, and uh, this, uh, the, the, in 1671, uh, in a, in a, in a uh, coffee, call, coffee house called uh, um, Garraway's, which is not too far from here, the first uh, batch of beaver fur was actually auctioned uh, as a result of, of this trip. But I'm interested in, in, in this charter, uh, because this charter set the terms under which this company was going to operate. Uh, what's interesting in this charter is that it made uh, it not only gave Hudson's Bay Company a complete monopoly for this trade, it actually gave this company property rights over everyth everything um, uh, in what was um, stated in the charter as all the areas with the rivers that drain into Hudson's Bay as long as there wasn't another Christian power that was already occupying that. Okay? So the king didn't even know uh, the area that was sort of handing over uh, for sole proprietorship uh, to Hudson's Bay Company um, uh, because the, the area hadn't yet been fully, uh, fully explored. It turned out that Hudson's Bay Company became the owner of a land that was 40% of today's Canada, about six times uh, the, 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 the size of today's France. Okay? And you can see what, what the, the charter says in the very last paragraph. It says, and further, this is King Charles II, further, we do create and constitute the said company for the time being and their successors, the true and absolute lords and proprietors of the same territory limits and places aforesaid. The true proprietors um, of the territory. Okay? So this wasn't just a question of granting a monopoly. It gave ownership of these vast tracts of, of, of land. So this company now could, could make laws, administer justice, um, uh, and, uh, and, and essentially become a state in all but name. In the 19th century, this company was even printing its own banknotes. Um, um, so uh, the, the, this is, of course, a, a story that we are familiar from um, the chartered trading companies um, uh, of the time, from the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, we've all, of course, everybody knows about the, the, East, the British East India Company or the, uh, the, the, the Dutch um, uh, East India Company. These were all companies built on the same model, uh, that they got not only the power to trade, but they also got essentially state-like powers uh, to administer justice, to enforce contracts, to, 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 um, to, uh, to essentially rule over potentially restless natives uh, with whom uh, these companies were trading on behalf of the consumers in, 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 Britain, in Britain and elsewhere. Now, uh, effectively, and we can see that this, this quid pro quo that these companies, these royal, these, these chartered uh, trading companies involved, we can see it very clearly in the, in, the, uh, in the instance of the Hudson's Bay Company. Because what was involved here? What was involved here is that the Hudson's Bay Company and, and rather sort of the, the, the investors um, um, who had started it 
had essentially invested in a whole bunch of um, public functions, public good-like functions, to enable this trade, the trade of beaver fur from the Cree Indians in North America um, and, the, and, 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 and people in Britain, to enable this trade to actually take, to take place. So, so that meant uh, establishing the possibility of a, of a safe naval passage from Britain to Hudson's Bay, undertaking all the necessary exploration inland, uh, establishing a trading relationship with the, Indian, in the, the Indians, convincing them that you could be relied on in, in a manner of speaking, um, uh, and you know, sort of providing all kinds of, of market research functions. Because after all, you know, if you were going to buy something from the, uh, the Native uh, Americans, you needed to be able to sell them something. Okay, and, and so you need to convince them that they needed ri rifles, that they needed brandy, um, and, um, and, 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 and the blankets, and the kettles, and everything else that, that you would sell them in, in. And then, of course, you needed to sort of ensure that this was an ongoing relationship uh, with, the, with the local population in which you know, there was a basic safety, they, there was basic uh, uh, peace, um, so that that trade could, could go on. So when these companies, like Hudson's Bay Company, received these monopoly rights for trading, this was in a way a compensation for all the investments uh, in public goods uh, in what I've called before the institutional infrastructure of markets uh, that in this case were actually provided by a private company. This was the Hudson's Bay Company. Okay? This was a case where we see all the, the institutional underpinnings of the market of, of what's required for long distance trade being provided uh, by a particular uh, private, uh, private firm and in return of course they were compensated uh, through these, um, through these um, uh, uh, monopoly rights. So here we see in a particularly stark and naked form the interplay, the interaction between trade and rule on the one on, 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 uh, together, how these things actually went together. Uh, that markets, in order that, that it wasn't just sort of that you, you couldn't magically have trade uh, between the local population in Northern America and Britain uh, in, in beaver fur just come out on its own. That this is what I meant by markets not being self-creating, self-regulating, and self-stabilizing. And of course, long distance trade, what, when we talk about globalization, we're talking about long distance trade. Uh, that trade is particularly prone uh, to the weakness of these kinds of institutions because in a national setting, in a particular country, we have those institutions in a particular country. Um, um, so, but you don't have those. The trade uh, necessarily crosses jurisdictions um, and therefore these weaknesses are even more apparent in the case of, of, of long distance trade. Um, so globalization, the bane of globalization through history has always been the question of how are you going to provide these underpinning institutions of governance uh, in order to ensure that this trade can take place. And different kinds of different forms of globalization had different types of those institutions. And what we're seeing here in the form of the charter trading companies was one particular form. Uh, of institution that underpinned uh, those uh, underpinned long long distance um, long distance uh, trade. Now, uh, when we come, of course, when we talk about the history of globalization, it's typically we start not from charter trading companies as I've done, but we start from the 19th century, which is supposed to be the first era of of, of globalization. And the first era of globalization was underpinned by different kinds of institutional arrangements. Um, two in particular. One is 
um, what I would call a belief system. Belief system <coughs> partly about free trade and partly about the necessity of the gold standard. Yeah? Um, so a lot of the, um, uh, the, the underpinnings of the spread of free trade uh, during the 19th century uh, was about the victory of, of, of liberal ideas from Adam Smith and David Ricardo on, uh, but it was also a victory of a particular frame of mind that, what, who, to, that people that we, today we would call monetary policymakers or central bankers had about the sanctity of the gold standard, that that was the only way that you could run monetary policy is to essentially um, have a fixed parity with gold and have free capital flows. Uh, so belief system, because they are, they are sort of an institution, in other words, you know, if people behave a certain way because they think that's the only normal respected way to behave, uh, it's just like having somebody enforce those rules on you. Uh, so in that sense, belief system is just like an, uh, just like an institution. But of course, for countries in the periphery in the 19th century, um, uh, you know, the ideas of Adam Smith and David Ricardo didn't you know, matter a whole lot. Uh, so the belief system's effect, effectiveness was actually quite limited. Uh, so that's where we had now the second institution uh, uh, playing a big role in 19th century globalization. And there was another kind of third party enforcement. And this was sort of imperialism. So charter trading companies was a kind of third party enforcement through some private entities. Um, by the 19th century, the powers of the, uh, uh, these private monopolies had now was shifting on uh, to the sovereign directly. Uh, and of course, a key turning point, for example, in the case of the East India Company is 1858, uh, when the Indian mutiny happens and East India Company is unable to contain it. What happens? Well, the powers, the East India Company is abolished and its powers now are transferred to the British Crown directly. So now it becomes part of the British Empire. So it is, in some sense, those private functions are now becoming public. And um, uh, uh, in, in the case of, of, uh, of imperialism, now this was going to be increasingly the sovereign that of the center countries, of the imperial countries, that was going to be the enforcer uh, of the rules. And this was done either through infor informal empire, uh, as for example when countries in the periphery, the Ottoman Empire, the, the, the Chinese or the Japanese, uh, were, the, uh, um, uh, were the recipient of asymmetric free trade uh, um, uh, 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 agreements that were imposed on them by Western powers. Or it was done directly in the form of actual rule through direct British imperialism. Uh, and in, in, Neil Fergus, in Neil Ferguson's book, or I should really say uh, Ode uh, to British Imperialism, um, there's a sort of very nice quote um, uh, which um, says, no organization in history has done more to promote the free movement of goods, capital, and labor than the British Empire in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Now, you can disagree with Neil Ferguson about you know, the normative uh, uh, connotations of imperialism, whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, but I don't think you can actually disagree with him on the facts of the case, that British imperialism enabled globalization because it, it enabled uh, the, the, uh, the, the servants of the British Empire to, to, uh, uh, to impose a set of rules and infrastructure and contracts and, 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 and mediation um, and everything else that the, um, that the trade uh, that, that of the time uh, uh, required. Um, now, the, it was a wonderful system of, of globalization if you didn't care about two things. Um, one was um, that 
from the perspectives of the uh, ones on whom the third-party enforcers were acting, that is, uh, the potentially restless local populations, uh, this involved a subjugation to a foreign power. So this was you know, one obvious weakness of this model. Um, a second was a, a sort of an intellectual uh, subjugation. Uh, the idea that anything that you did at home, that uh, in terms of your domestic economic policies, always had to be subjugated uh, to the requirements of international markets. And of course, this was clearest in the case of the gold standard, where the whole idea was that your conduct of monetary policy, your conduct of monetary policy at home, uh, is an extension of your commitment to the gold standard. And you cannot do anything other than what's required to maintain the gold standard. So uh, in order so other countries raise their interest rates, you have to raise your interest rate too. Otherwise, you incur a large drain of gold, and uh, you cannot handle that. And free capital flows are supposed to be free, and so forth. Now, when we come, uh, you can see that this is really running through history, right? The Bretton Woods Compromise. Now, the Bretton Woods Compromise, uh, which refers to the period uh, immediately after the Second World War, plays a very, very important role uh, in my book. Uh, because it is the first time, and still remains the height, of a system of global economic rules that for the first time uh, actually faced up to the needs of democracy. In other words, it was a system of rules that was meant to essentially um, uh, overcome these two limitations uh, of previous models of, uh, of economic globalization. Um, John Maynard Keynes, in particular, a key architect of the Bretton Woods system, had internalized a key lesson from the collapse of the gold standard in the interwar period, which was that when democracy clashes with the needs of the interna international market, uh, it is democracy that will eventually win. Um, and therefore, you better design the rules of the global market, taking into account that, um, uh, that domestic policymakers in societies where there is political democracy, where there's a mass franchise, where there's a mass media, uh, where the working class is organized, it's no longer going to work out uh, that governments will be able to do whatever is required simply to keep open capital markets and simply uh, maintain free trade. So you better need to take that into account. And how did uh, Keynes and his um, uh, uh, co-conspirators uh, solve that? They solved it by saying that we're going to create a system that essentially leaves significant room for maneuver, significant policy space uh, for dom domestic governments. Uh, to uh, conduct their own economic policies. Now, of course, what Keynes particularly had in mind was the need to open up space uh, for what today we call Keynesian uh, counter-cyclical policies, counter-cyclical monetary and fiscal policies. So that was why he particularly focused on the need to have capital controls in the Bretton Woods regime. But more broadly, the Bretton Woods regime opened up space on other dimensions as well. Uh, it, in, it, it envisaged a very thin model of trade liberalization that would allow uh, individual countries uh, to have the room uh, to restructure their economies, to use trade and industrial policies for the purposes of economic transformation. Uh, it would also uh, a kind of thin model of economic globalization that would enable countries to erect their own uh, uh, social protection and social welfare states um, so this is, the, this is uh, I, I think, the, the wisdom 
of the, of the Bretton Woods regime uh, was that, that he enabled a, a fine balance uh, between the prerogatives of the nation state, uh, hopefully democratic nation states, and that of the world economy, um, and, uh, and envisaged a system of international economic integration that left enough room for democratic nation states to devise their own uh, 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 regulatory arrangements for, for the market. Um, the Bretton Woods system was so successful that we forgot that lesson. It was so successful that um, the crucial mistake that we made into the 1980s uh, is that we thought we could push that system further than it could go uh, by precisely forgetting that the reason for its success was that it had enabled, it had created room for democratic governments or national governments uh, um, to, to conduct uh, fairly independent economic and social policies. So in both the era, eras of trade and finance, we start to move beyond and behind the borders and increasingly restrain and constrain uh, governments uh, from uh, 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 conducting independent policies. So in the, in the area of World Trade Organization, uh, industrial policies, um, uh, uh, health and, 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 and safety policies, uh, intellectual property rights, increasingly policies in, in agriculture and services uh, became subject to international rules. And in finance, uh, sort of uh, the, the um, uh, we began to think that the, that the normal and safe order of things was actually for capital and, uh, of all kinds to flow freely and that uh, capital, um, uh, capital controls were, were an abomination that uh, governments should, should absolutely uh, avoid. And where uh, sort of this system, of course, went wrong was that it forgot that uh, as you pushed the markets to integrate, there wasn't going to be the institutions that you needed to support those markets were still largely national, as I stated at the outset, and therefore you were pushing markets uh, uh, to, 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 to levels that uh, they couldn't provide effective outcomes. Um, and, um, um, and so one risk, of course, was that, that you know, you would, uh, you know, there would, a big gap would open up uh, between the reach of markets and the actual scope of regulation, and, and we've seen that. Uh, and the other risk was that in some areas, such as the World Trade Organization, where you did manage to um, uh, erect some uh, rules uh, that, were, that were really quite, uh, quite strikingly uh, uh, strong, uh, that the risk was that, of course, these rules would not carry legitimacy uh, because in the views of national democracies, uh, that, that the, the, the chain of delegation between their uh, wishes and their electors and uh, their parliaments and their executive and their appointed negotiators to the World Trade Organization and their uh, selected judges that would then rule on particular cases, that chain would be way too long uh, in order to be able to sustain effective legitimacy. Um, and that's, uh, that's, that's actually where we, what, exactly what we've seen and explains why the World Trade Organization is one of the world's least favorite, least liked uh, uh, institutions, even though by the standards of an economist, it's a phenomenal success. Um, so the results uh, of, of, of pushing further than what the system uh, could, uh, could go was, was this legitimacy deficit. It was a financial crisis, which are the direct result of uh, systems of governance and regulation having fallen short uh, of uh, this increasingly um, global financial markets. And of course, a, a highly uneven development record, uh, because paradoxically, even though the post-1980 period 
has been the world's most successful uh, development, uh, uh, development experience, right? There have never been so many hundreds of millions of people lifted from uh, extreme deprivation <coughs> ever. And of course, almost all of them are in China. Uh, so China has been a huge success. But successful countries in the spirit, paradoxically, have played the globalization game not by the hyper-globalization rules, but they've played them by the Bretton Woods rules. Uh, so it's precisely those countries that have been successful are those that have always ensured to have enough, enough domestic room for maneuver, enough room for restructuring their economies through the use of capital controls, through the use of high levels of trade protection, through enough room to ensure that they could use industrial policies. And when China eventually uh, entered the World Trade Organization relatively late in 2001, uh, it shifted all the uh, heavy lifting that trade and industrial policies were doing before, it shifted on to its exchange rate policies. So it didn't give up uh, on its objective of using uh, 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 aggressive uh, restructuring policies. So um, let me just now uh, try to sort of put together all of this uh, in uh, in the form that I call uh, a, a, a trilemma. Uh, and this is one of the constructs that I use in the book to sort of inform uh, some of the options that we have in terms of when we think about how we go forward uh, with, with, uh, uh, with, with globalization. So I've, I've, I've mentioned that, that the history of globalization is a history of this interplay uh, between uh, markets and, and their institutions and how we create them, how, we sort of, how those things are linked and what form, uh, what form they take. Um, so one way to think about uh, you know, how we can organize the world economy is, is that we essentially um, uh, have a system where the world is still divided into uh, different polities, uh, but we have a single economy. Uh, is it possible to have a world in which you have a single economy but divided polities? Well, historically, we've seen that we can. There are ways in which you could do that, but you need to sort of really restrict what these polities are able to do, either through a belief system, such as in the gold standard that says that the only way to sensibly carry your monetary policy is to do only what the gold standard requires, or through some kind of sort of third party enforcement from somewhere else, whether it's you know, imperialist gunboats or some charter trade company that's ruling your, your lands or something like that. Uh, if in principle, that gives you the hyper-globalization, a world that with a single united global market um, and some semblance of, of national sovereignty, um, but that's a world of you know, what uh, Tom Friedman called golden straight jacket. That is that, that you're really totally restricted in, 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 your, in the conduct of your economic policies. And that's the sense in which really this is a, this is a system that has to leave democracy or democratic politics at arm's length. Uh, it needs to sort of leave it at, at bay. Um, uh, again, Tom Friedman has this nice uh, nice uh, um, uh, um, uh, passage in, his, in Lexus and Olive Tree where he thinks that we're already in this golden straight jacket and he says so in this world uh, with capital infinitely mobile uh, you know as your economy grows your politics shrinks <coughs> your politics in politics you have, you're left with no other choice than between Coke and a Pepsi 
Okay? So forget about local flavors, forget about any other variety of, 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 of possible policies or institutional arrangements, because you know, free capital flows and the requirements for free trade will, will, will you know, sort of rest constrains you to just the, the, the narrowest range of, of possible policies. Um, well, uh, you may not like this because you know, ultimately, even though a global open multilateral trade regime is not necessarily incompatible with democracy. Uh, there's no requirement that everything that a set of global regulators or global institutions will want you to do will be necessarily consistent with what is it that, that, not, that democratically elected uh, uh, um, uh, 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 politicians will necessarily face up to in terms of their, the, what their stakeholders and, 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 and popular uh, um, uh, demands, uh, demands require. Uh, so the, the, the second, uh, the second uh, option is really uh, is what I mentioned is the, is, the, is the Bretton Woods Compromise. The Bretton Woods Compromise says that we are actually going to maximize democratic legitimacy at home. We're going to empower nation states uh, to carry the kinds of economic uh, uh, policies that they need. Um, even if this comes at the, at the price of transactions costs at the border, even if it comes at the price of not having the full globalization, because that's, that's exactly what Bretton Woods did, because Bretton Woods said, with regard to financial flows, we're going to have capital controls. And remember, uh, it's important to remember that when uh, Keynes argued for the importance of capital controls for the Bretton Woods regime, he said, we need capital controls not as a temporary expedient, we need capital controls as a permanent feature of this regime because he understood that independent monetary and fiscal policies were going to be feasible only if you segmented financial markets. Um, uh, and of course, in, in, in the case of, of the GATT, uh, there were all kinds of exceptions and carve-outs and safeguards and so forth that ensured that uh, developing countries and even advanced countries uh, could, uh, could pursue their own independent uh, 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 economic policies. Um, now, of course, the, 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 the downside of this, if you will, is we're not, we're not getting the, the, the total absence of transactions costs that associated with national borders that would give us hyperglobalization. The third uh, possible option uh, is, um, is, is what one might call uh, global governance, uh, which is basically you say, well, you know, uh, who cares about the nation state? Um, let's just carry, let's just move the locus of politics democratic politics all the way above um, to the global level um, and therefore have uh, the global market and global politics be coterminous um, uh, once more. Um, and that's, uh, that in principle uh, is, uh, is, is one of the, the, one of the um, uh, possible outcomes. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical of this um, and I argue, I argue against this as a, um, as a general solution to our problems uh, for two reasons. And I think you know, the, the less important reason is the impracticality. So you might say, you know, well, you know, how many politicians, how many prime ministers, presidents do you really think you know, will, are willingly going to give up power to international organizations? Okay. So that's the practical argument against uh, the global governance rule. But I think there's a much more serious substantive argument against this, and that's the one that, that, uh, that I emphasize in the book, uh, which is that there are legitimately different, there are legitimate differences in the needs of societies with respect to the kinds of institutional arrangements that they want. 
Um, that is, uh, different societies may want and require different kinds of labor market institutions, different types of corporate tax rates, uh, different social welfare states, uh, uh, and they may be at different levels of economic development, requiring some of them uh, to engage in extensive economic restructuring, industrial policies, and others not. Uh, so these are hugely different needs and preferences in the kind of diverse world that we need, uh, that we live now. And the notion that you can uh, create global rules which will effectively require the harmonization of these practices so that you can eliminate the transaction costs uh, associated with the diversity of these rules and regulations, that flies in the face of this particular substantive reason that, these, this, that this diversity in terms of the needs and preferences over the shape that institutional underpinnings of markets take are grounded in real needs, not just simply you know, sort of the venality of <coughs> national politicians. Uh, okay, so that's the more substantive reason why I think the global governance rule is is uh, is is uh, uh, is is not uh, um, a, the way to go, uh, it, because it, it is a way of of thinking that that we can substantively undermine regulatory, institutional, and and, and and policy diversity. And if we're not going to be undermining it, then then the locus of decision making over these uh, uh, over these uh, matters will still remain largely around the the the, the, uh, the nation state. Um, now, so the, the, the point of the trilemma is simply to say that, look, uh, that, that uh, there is, we, re we have real choices that we need to make. Uh, if you think that you can simultaneously move towards more and better and a more perfect globalization uh, in a world where um, the, uh, the, the, you know, that politicians, national politicians, aren't giving up significant powers over to uh, multilateral or global institutions, and we think that we can also have, you know, our democratic values um, 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 uh, 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 reflected in the institutions that we have, uh, that you cannot have all those three things simultaneously. So either at the margin, you either have to give up a little bit on hyperglobalization or on, uh, on democratic politics or on the kinds of, of legitimate diversity needs and preferences associated with national self-determination and national sovereignty, um, um, uh, and one of those must, must go. Uh, right now, the world is really a hodgepodge. I think the way that we deal with different problems in the world economy are, for no good reason, I would argue, uh, are, uh, sort of have taken on one or one of these models at the expense of the other. So let me just give you an example of three very different areas in the world economy uh, where we're applying these three different models. Uh, so think about the uh, just a, a few years back, um, there was a scare in the United States because it turned out that uh, Chinese exports <coughs> of toys to the U.S. market contained unsafe levels of, of uh, levels of lead. Uh, unsafe by the standards of U.S. regulatory U.S. regulations. Okay. What was the reaction to this? Uh, uh, so this was the, the famous toxic toys case. What was the regulation? To, what was the reaction to this? The reaction to this was to say, well, uh, obviously, anybody who wants to sell toys or any other consumer goods in the U.S. market must ensure that the goods that they're selling us satisfy the same health and safety standards as those that are produced in the United States. So, you want to play in our market, you play by our rules. This was the Bretton Woods approach, because it said that I am setting up my own 
solutions. I'm, I'm setting up my own rules and regulations right, through some democratic procedure. And if you want to come into market, into my market, you better abide by those rules. Okay? So I'm not going to let my own rules be undermined by some other rules that you have selected for yourself. This is the Bretton Woods Compromise. Um, what about uh, sort of global finance? Uh, the equivalent of in the, in the area of global finance would have been to say, well, uh, what if we are now importing not toxic toys, but toxic assets? Um, this is exactly what happened in the global financial crisis, that the United States became an exporter of toxic assets to the rest of the world. Right? We might have reached the conclusion on the, on, uh, 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 as a result of this to say that, well, we should apply exactly the same principle that we apply in the case of toxic toys, which is to say we design our own regulations and then we say um, anybody who wants to play a game with us or anybody who wants to sort of engage in, in, in financial intermediation in our jurisdiction has to satisfy our own standards. Uh, in fact, we're going now through an entirely different route, which is the, gold, is the global governance route. It's largely because banks do not want to have to deal with different regulations in different parts of the world, and therefore saying the only sane outcome is to have a globally harmonized, globally coordinated set of common regulations, whether it's through the G20 or it's the Basel Committee or it's the Financial Stability uh, Forum, Right? But this is the global governance agenda. But in principle, you could have applied the Bretton Woods uh, solution here as well. And then there are areas where we're really applying the golden straitjacket. And labor market issues particularly come under that, uh, that, that area, in particular because labor market uh, voices have, become, have been very, very weak here. So think about imports of goods uh, that n don't contain toxic, to toxic uh, lead, high levels of lead, but suppose they are made by uh, child labor or under other exploitative conditions. Now, just like toys that contain um, uh, high levels of lead undermine safety regulations in the important country, uh, goods that are made using exploitative labor practices in other countries undermine long-standing labor market rules and arrangements and institutions in the importing country. It's logically, it's exactly the same phenomenon. But what do we say here? Do we say we should keep those goods out? No, we say this is comparative advantage, free trade ought to prevail, uh, this is just diversity of, 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 of institutions, and therefore we should essentially allow um, our institutions, to the extent that they are undermined by these, um, uh, um, sort of this, the effect of, of this potential um, uh, uh, competition by, uh, by low standard jurisdictions that this is as it ought to be. And this is exactly the golden straitjacket solution, which is to say, you know, you say we have to have free trade no matter what it does to our own rules and regulations and our, 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 own, our own compacts. Um, I uh, 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 argue that um, uh, we ought to move in a different direction, one that is in fact much closer uh, to rejuvenating uh, the Bretton Woods Compromise uh, that actually uh, opens up space uh, for uh, democratic policy making at the national level. Um, I argue that we should have a system that explicitly acknowledges that countries have the right to protect their own social arrangements and institutions, but not to impose them on others. I think that's a very important normative principle, that you have a right to have your own financial regulations, your own labor market institutions, but not a right to impose 
saying that those same rules and regulations ought to be shared by others. Um, uh, and, and the objective of, 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 uh, of, of what we need to do, therefore, is to accept the diversity of these institutional arrangements around the world, and therefore, rather than when international negotiators get together, they ought to be discussing not how to harmonize away these differences, but how to create traffic rules, how to establish the interface uh, between uh, these different um, uh, uh, policy um, uh, um, jurisdictions in a way that the, the, the adverse uh, spillovers are, are minimized and the objective would be to have these uh, tra traffic rules that essentially create policy space, that's what I mean by re-empowering democratic nation states uh, to provide um, uh, social insurance, address concerns about labor, environmental health and safety consequences of trade, shorten the chain of democratic delegation to international organizations. Uh, with respect to poor nations to allow them to uh, restructure their economies so that they're better positioned to take advantage of globalization just like China and other successful Asian countries have in fact done um, and, and, and all nations poor and rich alike uh, to be able to create their own financial systems and regulatory structures that might be more attuned to their own conditions and needs. I'll just say one more thing um, and then I'll, I'll stop. Um, I'll just say this last thing because one uh, common objection to um, uh, what I've said so far is to say that if you do what you suggest, which is to re-empower nation states and give them this policy space, then it's just going to be the slippery slope into sort of each country doing its own thing and, and sort of this protectionist uh, uh, slippery slope and then uh, what will happen to uh, this global commons that we call the world economy. And it'll be, if, if everybody's for themselves, then, then it's just going to be the whole world economy is going to collapse into individual, you know, beggar thy neighbor kinds of policies. I think this is a very misleading way of thinking about the world economy. And the way to sort of make, mean, uh, to make clear what I mean is to say that the world economy is not a global commons, the same, that the glo the same the way that the global climate is. Uh, because in the case of global climate, it is indeed true that if you leave every country to do whatever is good for them, then it is in every country's individual self-interest to free ride on the uh, carbon control policies of every other country. And therefore, no country invests in climate control. We all go to hell together. That's the sort of the, the, you know, the, the, you know, the, 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 the traditional, um, uh, 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 um, the traditional commons uh, tragedy of the commons. The world economy isn't like this, because the reason that we think we economists think that each individual country should follow good policies, that is, moderate openness in terms of trade and finance is not because they will be doing good for the world economy at, at, at large. It's because it's good for their own economies. So if, if the whole economic logic of comparative advantage and openness is that it is in the individual self-interest of countries to actually follow open trade and financial policies. So we actually leave them to do what's good for them. If, if those of us who want better policies can win the democratic debate within each individual countries, in fact, we don't get the tragedy of commons. We, do, we get each individual country doing what's largely good for it themselves and also what's good for, a large, for an open and healthy uh, world economy. Um, and if you think this is a, a, um, a, 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 a just a, an outlandish thought, let me leave you with this. 
We've just gone through the most um, severe financial crash that the world has experienced since the Great Depression. Right? It is absolutely striking and extraordinary how little protectionism there has been during this period of extreme stress. And what that shows, I think, is how far we have come in terms of our ideas about what's good policy um, and, 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 and what makes sense. Um, and part of this, I think, is, is to show that, that, that if you actually um, allow countries to do uh, what's good for themselves, you're not necessarily going to get into these hugely um, slippery slopes of protection so and beggar thy neighbor. That is not to minimize some areas of spillovers, but I think in a world where the, uh, um, the, uh, the global cooperation is a very, very scarce resource, I think we ought to be focusing our areas on those uh, on, on, on where there are significant adverse spillovers, such as macroeconomic imbalances and exchange rate policy, and stay away from areas such as trade and industrial policy and uh, uh, financial regulation where those adverse spillovers are in fact not that large. Let me just stop here. Thank you. We are pushed for time. Uh, there is, uh, uh, in, thank you, Danny, for a tour de force, an incredibly rich lecture, um, which, we, of course, we can all follow up by reading the book and engaging with you elsewhere. But because we're pushed for time, I want to take as many questions as possible in the next 10 minutes. Please bear in mind the externalities of a long question. That's why we need rules, and more than traffic rules, we need enforcement of rules. Um, a question is something that broadly can be answered yes and no. I want to take at least 10 questions, so please keep them short. But let me remind you of one thing, because we're very short of time, that when we finish, it has to be at 6.15 on the dot. Danny and I will leave first. Please stay seated, and then there'll be a book signing afterwards. Now, let's see if we can do questions really quickly, and then Danny will have a few minutes at the end to pick up the issues that are most important to him. Yes. Perhaps you could just say who you are and your brief question. Gentleman on the right. Hi, my name is Shimri. I work at LSE Global Governance. And my question is, um, 10 years ago, when, when you first came up with the trilemma, um, what you said is that it's more realistic in the long term um, to globalize democracy rather than to, to reverse globalization or economic globalization. And I, my question is, what changed? Okay. Question over here. My name is Tom Hale. I'm a visiting fellow at the LSC Global Governance Center. My question is about uh, what I interpret to be an implicit assumption in your argument that international organizations as global governance necessarily restricts the democraticness of, of national policymaking. And an example could be uh, when, you, when you use the financial regulation in the United States that led to the export of toxic assets to the rest of the world was in fact a product of democratic processes in the United States that were, some argue, captured by national interest groups. These were in, in tension with the international standards developed by these nefarious networks of international regulators that were in fact stronger from a regulatory stance. So how does that fit your argument? Good question. Yeah, gentleman over there with the mic. Hi, um, I'm Karsten. I do economic sociology at the LSE. Um, you emphasize heavily the importance of institutional variety as across countries, um, saying that countries have different social arrangements, they have different preferences, preferences and so forth. 
Uh, now the question is, are there actual limits to the number of potential varieties of institutional arrangements? Um, in other words, is there a different model of, uh, are there, is there a different model of capitalism for each country, or are there kind of maybe I ideal types or models that are more successful than others? And if so, um, what are the implications for your trilemma? Great, thank you. Thank you for all being so disciplined. Yeah, so there, I have the mic down here now. Emmanuel Yuriko, LSE Ideas. While I like the ideas you're putting forward, how radical a change to the system of global economic governance needs to happen in order to make your vision come true, and is it possible in your opinion? Um, I'm you. Ipek, um, master's student in uh, international development. Um, doesn't um, your analysis also assume that the democracies bring the, bring the, the best decisions for, for, an, for an economy? Uh, meaning that uh, the countries, I mean, even looking at the states, how their borders are defined and how people are able to free in terms of um, choosing the right uh, governors to, to make the right decisions for them. Doesn't this assume that democracy is like a perfect solution for the countries? Yeah, I was going to add something to that. Isn't it the case now, increasingly, we see that the, some of the major democracies in the world above all the US are gridlocked on some critical issues because of the interweaving of interest groups? And what we don't like to recognize is that some of the so-called Bretton Woods successes stories of the recent years are more authoritarian regimes that mobilize resources and decisions faster and have been much more successful in shifting resources where it matters, when it matters. Just an elaboration of your question. Let's go on. Yes. Lady over there with a the green top. Uh, my name is Jacqueline, and I'm a master's student of international development here at LSE. And I'm just wondering uh, if global governance may be the most effective solution, for example, in the case of climate change or with other environmental outcomes, but domestic policies may be more desirable for different uh, economic setups in different countries. But there's so much interaction and overlap between environmental policies and economic policies worldwide. How do you reconcile these two combined needs? Okay, great. This is going really well. I mean, you must have a headache by now, but <laughs> we're going to move on. Yes. When you said 6.15. Yes, thank you. My name is Nita. I just wanted to know whether uh, you think that um, the reasons why the uh, deadlock on the WTO Doha development round and the stalemate on the negotiations of the economic partnership agreement between the EU and the ACP countries uh, would have a resonance with what you're saying and uh, that uh, national governments are re reluctant to give up uh, some of their national uh, policies. Okay, thank you. The gentleman just at the top, a bit behind. Hi, um, thanks for your lecture, Danny. Uh, my name's David, I work in social enterprise. Um, I was just wondering, um, uh, a big feature of hyper-globalization is inequality um, within and between nations. Uh, and I was wondering if you thought that inequality was a healthy thing or an unhealthy thing. Okay, now, we have quite a lot of big... We wanted to get issues out and give Danny a chance to respond to them. Is there anyone else with a really pressing question who would be really depressed if they didn't ask it? <laughs> Nobody? Any bids? Yes, we'll take that. We'll stop at depression here. Hi, <clears throat> thank you for your talk, Professor Roderick. My name is Carlos Lopez. I'm a PhD student in industrial policy at Cambridge University. I was just wondering, what do you think is the role of organizations like UNIDO, UNDP? I mean, in your 
new scheme here, should they exist? Are they doing the right thing? What would you recommend? Okay, Danny, that is a, a lot of issues on the table. And I haven't even asked my questions yet. But we've got, you've got about six minutes, seven minutes. <laughs> Great questions. I do wish we had, we had more time. I mean, I, um, um, you know, is democracy best? Uh, no, I mean, but you know, again, I mean, the, just the, it's, the question is, is what, what is the, the alternative? I mean, I, you know, I don't want to review here. The, there's a very large economic literature on, you know, the consequences of, of democracy and, and uh, you know, it's um, and what we've learned from this is that you know it's, it's that you know that there's there's it's, that democracies, you know, systematically produce better results on certain uh, with respect to certain things like equity, with investments in human capital and so forth, and self-worth, uh, and on other result on other dimensions, they don't uh, produce worse results. So I think. You know, and and uh, it, it's sort of uh, so. Even if you look at a democracy from a from a purely instrumental um, uh, perspective, you would always want to pick democracy over the alternative. Now, I think when we compare, you know, China and so forth, I think we're often making a mistake in the sense that the big question for China is, is I view it as virtually impossible that they would come anywhere close to the level of incomes of the uh, advanced countries of the world without becoming significantly more democratic. And, and that's, what, that's, that would, that's essentially a big source of uncertainty about China's future is precisely whether they'll be able to handle that democratic uh, shift. Uh, you know, given uh, their their governance structure now, but I certainly uh, don't, don't think that what they've managed to achieve has been the result of uh, of, of authoritarian regimes. Um, the now, there's an interesting question here about whether does um, do, does global governance or multilateralism or or or, uh, or adherence to international rules necessarily have to work at cross purposes with democracy? Um, no, and as the questioner in fact uh, intimated, those may enhance democracy because there is value to delegation. We understand the value of democratic delegation and, and nothing I said dismisses the value of democratic delegation. But what I'm just arguing uh, is against the presumption that such delegation is always democ democracy enhancing. Um, because uh, and if you if you are willing to accept that not all in international constraints are going to enhance democratic deliberation, then there is this tension that I'm I'm willing. So I'm all for uh, de 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 delegation to international organizations that enhance democracy, uh, democratic deliberation at home. In fact, I have a long discussion in the book where I say that the role of as part of this, you know devising these traffic rules and this, this interface um, that a lot of uh, discussion has to go in terms of how these rules, uh, international rules, can uh, set procedural requirements for what national governments can need to do if they are going to take exceptions to the international rules. So those you can imagine the procedural requirements of things like accountability, transparency, uh, the use of scientific knowledge where it's relevant. So all procedural requirements that would enhance uh, the working of democracy. And if we can have rules that actually enhance that democratic deliberation, constraints of that kind are absolutely helpful. 
but if you have a constraint of the kind that simply says, you know, that, that this is the rule on your particular health and safety standard, this is the rule on financial um, uh, uh, regulation, uh, uh, it, 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 and, and there is no possibility of opting out of those uh, in response to changing domestic circumstances and democratic pressures, I don't think that as a rule that's going to be enhancing uh, uh, domestic democracy. The other thing that we all often forget when we think, of, when we say, when we talk about the benefits of democracies constraining themselves vis -a, with respect to international rules, is that sometimes we assume that those international rules are made by, you know, platonic guardians, um, not for the benefit of, of of democracies. In fact, they are much more prone to capture by self by interest groups. Uh, than may be the case in a domestic setting. We see this very well in the area of financial regulation because globally harmonized financial regulations in Basel and elsewhere, they're basically set by international banks um, and they have predominant power in determining what those rules are going to be, just like the pharmaceutical companies and the Disney company had so much power in determining copyright and patent rules under the World Trade Organization. When those decisions are made domestically, those companies and those interest groups, in fact, face much greater opposition from other interest groups at home. Uh, so, in fact, that's a much that's a reason why politicizing those decisions uh, by moving them from international bodies to, dom to domestic bodies uh, is often a, a, direct, a move in the right direction. Um, the uh, there was a question about why if I had changed my view on uh, you know, the, the long-run desirability of global governance, I guess I have sort of moved uh, a little bit away from that, thinking that there was, no, there was really no reason that we would, that would necessarily move to a world where the, the underlying diversity had, uh, had sufficiently dissipated. And I think as when we think about the difficulty that the European Union um, has experienced in building is, is sort of like its regional uh, version of global governance. We understand that that sort of you know, given how difficult this has been for even a small number of countries uh, that are sim relatively similar, how difficult it would be for the world as a whole. Um, would this be radical, and uh, uh, um, would the changes be uh, would this changes be feasible? I think in some parts it's it's radical. Um, uh, and I think what we require is mostly a change in, in frame of mind. So the, you know, the kind of change that I have in mind is when trade negotiators get together in Geneva or, or wherever else, uh, are they in a frame of mind that says, let's negotiate market access, let's exchange market access. So they're still in the frame of mind about uh, removing transactions costs. Or are they in a frame of mind that says, let's negotiate about enlarging policy space and let's design those rules that allow you to, um, to, 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 to um, uh, respond to the needs of your society in ways that we have uh, restricted too much recently. I should add that there are some parts of the world economy where, in fact, there are too few rules. I argue that um, in the, uh, with respect to worker mobility around the world, uh, we are today in the world economy um, uh, roughly where the trade regime was in the 1950s. That is, way too high barriers in worker mobility. So I would rather see us in the context of the WTO 
negotiating something about uh, restricting worker mobility at the margin rather than uh, trying to eke the, uh, the final grains of gain uh, from uh, free trade in, in, in goods. Uh, and and I, I'm afraid I, I have to stop here. Apologies to those of you whose questions I haven't been able to handle. Well, we have um, 30 seconds left for an applause.